0: personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We need the tonic of wilderness to wade sometimes in marshes where the bittern and the meadow hen lurk and hear the booming of the snipe to smell the whispering sedge where only some wilder and more solitary fowl builds her nest, and the mink crawls with its belly close to the ground. At the same time that we are earnest to explore and learn all things, we require that all things be mysterious and unexplorable, that land and sea be infinitely wild, unsurveyed and unfathomed by us because unfathomable. We can never have enough of nature. We must be refreshed by the sight of inexhaustible vigor, The vast and titanic features, the seacoast with its wrecks, the wilderness with its living and its decaying trees, the thundercloud and the rain which lasts three weeks and produces freshets. We need to witness our own limits transgressed, and some life pasturing freely where we never wander. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
0: And I'm Joe McCormick. And that opening reading was from Walden by Henry David Thoreau, a classic piece of uh, of, uh, literature appreciating nature. So today is a Monday, which is usually the day of the week we would feature a bit of listener mail. But instead, today we've got a special bonus episode for you. Unlike in our regular episodes, this is what we call in the industry a branded episode, which means it was created in partnership with with our sponsor today, Mazda. Uh, basically, Mazda came to us with a set of themes um, mostly relating to the well documented positive effects of spending time in nature. And we thought, yeah, well, we could absolutely do an episode on that uh, because the effect of nature on the human body and brain is a huge, fascinating and complex subject worthy probably of an entire series in itself. But in today's episode, we're going to focus on a few interesting questions and studies in the subject area that really struck us. So today's bonus episode will be our branded feature with Mazda called Why Nature, which we hope you really enjoy. And then we're going to be back to our regular schedule with a new core episode tomorrow. And when I first started pondering the subject, I, I was thinking about how, the, you know, there are really multiple ways that we can frame our personal relationship with uh, nature, because of course, there is the the very blunt fact that life depends on life, and that nature is the word we use for that complex web of relationships between uh, the sun, the earth, the water, and all the different life forms that inhabit this environment, which in a literal sense we could not live without, even with all of our technology. There's a line from the poet Denise Levertov where she writes that we call it nature only reluctantly admitting ourselves to be nature too. We could not live without it because we
1: are it. Yeah, even when we put up walls against nature, often to distance ourselves from the aspects of nature that we're not crazy about, it's still there with us inside, uh, hopefully in the plants and animals and works of art that we surround ourselves within our our unnatural habitats. Uh, But also nature is there in the biological reality of our existence and in the environmental conditions our senses are heightened to appreciate.
0: Yeah, exactly. So that's like the first level. It's just like we bluntly need it. We can't live without it. The second thing, of course, is that there's a sort of metaphysical or metaphorical facet of nature, uh, which I think is the main subject of that passage I read from Thoreau in the beginning, we're creatures that search the environment, not only for aid and physical survival, you're not only looking for food and shelter and water in the, in the landscape around you. uh, But, you know, uh, because of our complex brains, we also search for meaning. And I think it's a surprisingly widespread suspicion that there is somehow meaning to be found in nature, that somehow the rocks, the trees, the birds, the vines, the algae, and the insects, in some profound and ineffable way, have implications for our lives. So you take a walk in the woods, and somehow it tends to suggest conclusions about the meaning of life and your place in the universe. So these conclusions can often be very difficult
1: to put into words. Sometimes people like Thoreau give it a try. Yeah, I think of it in two ways. First, there's the metaphorical side of the situation. Uh, Linguistically and cognitively, we need things to make sense of life and everything in it. Uh, from skyward branches of the tree to uh, to its deep-diving roots, from soaring hawks to slumbering dogs, we find metaphorical mirrors for our world and our thoughts in all of nature's details. But on the other hand, and this is something driven home by spiritual teacher Eckhart Tolle, if we engage with, say, a flower in the wild and experience it of itself in the moment— and then we have a. In that case, we have an excellent tool by which to momentarily step outside of our egos, uh, quiet the voices of the default mode network in our head, worrying about the past and the future, and ex- simply experience the now, like that that flower. And a flower is especially good because of its enhanced if uh, eph- ephemerality. Uh, it becomes a window into. The now, a window into the timeless, and we're able to sort of let everything else, all the human complexities fade away, and we become quite literally one with nature in the moment. I think we've all had some of these moments
0: of a kind of profound connection with the natural environment, I think often in solitude, but uh, sometimes with other people around as well. I mean, I I think uh, particularly of a time I felt a really strange kind of... uh, relationship to all of the, the, the dry desert brush when I took a, a very brief solo hike in Big Bend National Park. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, th- this was like half an hour, but, uh, but but something happened to me on that walk, and I still remember it.
1: Yeah, nature is is pretty weird though when you stop and think about it, because we do have countless reasons to wish to avoid it. Uh, let's let's not deny it. There are risks in nature, and for most of human history, nature itself posed the greatest risk to life and well-being. Even today, our relationship with nature is often strained. Is it a thing we seek to distance ourselves from? Is it a thing we wish to dominate and control? I find, that, I find that even myself, when I venture into nature, I can still feel myself very much on the path, you know? Uh, I'm experiencing nature on my own particular terms, but then sometimes when you let that go, you can experience nature on its own terms and allow yourself to sort of dilute just a little bit back into the thing that we've always been a part of. So for my own part, I'd say some, some of the more pronounced experiences like this that I've had uh, include uh, glimpsing a, a wild sloth. In the cloud forests of costa rica um, tracking the movement and shifting form of an octopus beneath the waters in maui and and i have to say you know the encounters of course don't have to be anywhere near this exotic i i finally remember spotting some wild turkeys with my family while strolling through a local cemetery uh here around town and on certain days in different parts of my life You know, that the sky has been just blue enough, something about a particular shade of blue sky, the clouds wispy enough uh, that it kind of kind of forges as a renewing moment that is kind of unshackled from time itself. Uh, And when I get to experience the sky in just such a way, uh, a combination of circumstance and awareness of the moment. It's the same sky, you know, that I saw all these other times, and I'm the same person. And it's uh, you feel this kind of connection to yourself and to nature, and you get this you know great sense of calm. and And that's something I could potentially experience uh, anywhere, as long as the, uh, the the sky looked just right, and I took the time out of my day to appreciate it.
0: Right. So lots of us have these moments we remember these profound moments of connection with with nature and the natural environment, but. Of course those can be um, you know difficult to put into words, much less to study in an organized way though when you want to get down to to quantifiable effects, you can actually look at like empirically documented effects of nature on our health, both mental and physical and on our thoughts and behavior like what can scientific experiments and surveys tell us about the measurable impact of proximity to or immersion in natural environments? And to go a step deeper, do we have any idea why these effects would hold true? And it's this last set of questions that we're going to be primarily focusing on for the rest of this episode. So to start off by mentioning a few of the human health and life outcomes that have been correlated with exposure to nature or what's sometimes called green space, a pretty self-explanatory concept. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is by no means going to be a comprehensive overview, but it's wor- worth mentioning a few things that seem to have good evidence behind them and, and caught our attention. Now, fortunately, at this point, there has been enough research on exposure to nature that we don't have to pick through all of the individual uh, uh, papers over the, the decades this has been looked into. We can actually look at meta-analyses that compile these existing studies to see what kind of trends emerge. Now, there is some difficulty in this domain because uh, not all studies that look into the benefits of nature uh, study the exact same thing. Like one might look at people making trips out into the woods and another might look at uh, the outcomes in neighborhoods with nearer access to parks and urban forests. And other ones might just look at, uh, what are the effects of people looking at pictures of trees and stuff? Mm -hmm. But despite that heterogeneity, there is enough research now that you can kind of do this meta-analysis and some signals come through pretty strong. So in terms of physiological health benefits, benefits to the body, I was looking at an article by uh, Tuig Bennett and Jones, published in Environmental Research in 2018, called The Health Benefits of the Great Outdoors, a systematic review and meta-analysis of green space exposure and health outcomes. So this review looked at 143 studies on the health effects of exposure to green space. And when analyzed together, these studies show statistically significant reductions in diastolic blood pressure, in heart rate, and in salivary cortisol. Now, you might wonder, what is that last one, salivary cortisol? This would be a measure of the concentration of the hormone cortisol in your spit. Cortisol is usually interpreted as a physical biomarker of stress. Uh, Cortisol is secreted by the adrenal glands and is largely responsible for controlling the body's fight-or-flight response. The meta-analysis also found reductions in the incidence of diabetes and cardiovascular mortality. Uh, and again, these are not the only correlations that have been found, just the most significant and consistent ones. So these are some physiological outcomes measured in the health of the body. But what about like mental well-being and cognitive performance? Uh, well, first of all, I would say there is the simple, well-documented fact that people seem to just really like nature in a subjective sense Lots of people have a baseline preference for looking at nature, for hearing nature, for touching it, for being in it. And this has been measured dozens of different ways. Uh, This actually would probably be a good place to talk about the idea of the biophilia hypothesis.
1: Yes, the biophilia hypothesis uh, that was brought to us by American biologist E.O. Wilson. Now, I do have to to mention uh, briefly that uh, that on December 26th to 2021, uh, E.O. Wilson passed away at the age of 92. Uh, so, uh, you know, rest in peace, uh, E.O. Wilson. But he leaves behind a career full of admiration for and study of the natural world with a special focus on the world of ants. Uh, He's widely known and respected for his work in myrmecology, but he'll always be remembered as well for what he called the biophilia hypothesis. So Wilson proposed the term love of life in a short publication back in 1984. Biophilia, the human bond with other species. And he defined it as humanity's innate tendency to focus on living things as opposed to the inanimate. In effect, he argued for an innate love of nature. He wrote... Quote, the object of my reflection can be summarized by a single word, biophilia, which I will be so bold as to define as the innate tendency to focus on life and lifelike processes. Quote, from infancy, we concentrate happily on ourselves and other organisms. We learn to distinguish life from the inanimate and move toward it like moths to a porch light. Novelty and diversity are particularly esteemed. The mere mention of of the world extraterrestrial evokes reveries about still unexplored life, displacing the old and once potent exotic that drew earlier generations to remote islands and jungled interiors. That much is immediately clear, but a great deal more needs to be added. I will make the case that to explore and affiliate with life is a deep and complicated process in mental development. To an extent still undervalued in philosophy and religion, our existence depends on this propensity. Our is woven from it. Hope rises on its currents. And he goes on to state that, uh, that modern scientific understanding of biology allows us to place a greater value upon them and ourselves. Quote, the living environment is what really sustains us. The living environment creates the soil, creates most of the atmosphere. It's not just something out there. The biosphere is a membrane, a very thin membrane of a living organism. And we have to stress that this hypothesis goes beyond the mere generalities of, hey, people love nature. Uh, It gets into the idea that there's at least in part a genetic link involved, that there are genes for biophilia. In the same way that humans are wired, hardwired, as we say, to respond to an infant's laughs and cries, we are also wired to respond to various things in nature. Uh, And it's been a part of our evolution, or so argues the hypothesis. And in the end, Wilson ultimately argues that, yes, Nature is is out there, it's in here, and nature is the thing that sustains us.
0: Wilson also embodied biophilia in a very inspiring way. I, I think you, uh, you'll recall that documentary we watched where mm-hmm. he goes up to a mound of fire ants and he plunges his hand into it yep. and he's just beaming with delight
1: saying, look at how they're biting me. And <laughs> <laughs> he just loves these ants. Yeah, I mean, my son likes to... Um, to carefully stir up a fire ant nest and, and watch them swarm and, uh, and just observe <laughs> them, you know, not, not harm them in any way. It make, can make walks very slow, but in a sense, like this drives home the difference between what sometimes a busy adult's walk can be and what like the pure biophilic walk of a child is. Like I just want to get from point A to point B and back. I need to get a certain amount of steps in and I need to be back to work on something. But to, to the child, uh, It is, uh, you're just on the way and here is some nature. Let us observe it. Let's watch it. Uh, Even though dad thinks that a walk, uh, at least this afternoon, is supposed to be there and back again in under a certain amount of time.
0: Yeah, so there are tons of demonstrations that people have this this baseline attraction to and subjective aesthetic preference for nature. And this, this is translated even to very abstracted form. So it's not just like people like being out in nature. You can even show, like there are a lot of experiments that show people prefer looking at pictures of nature Mm -hmm. (laughs) as opposed to pictures of other things, you know, built human environments or objects, inanimate objects or other types of imagery. Uh, There was one study I was looking at from 1972 that found, interestingly, that there was a preference not just for Imagery that had nature in it, but especially uh, imagery that had nature in it with a certain amount of visual complexity. People kind of like an intermediately complex natural scene, something that might involve many different kinds of uh, plants, landscape patterns, and shapes, and so forth.
1: Yeah, there's been some interesting work on this, talking about these, these vistas. Uh, in paintings that you could essentially walk into. And then once you're in there, you could develop a foraging strategy. You could decide Mm -hmm. where you might seek shelter, where you might get the, the, the best view of the surroundings and so forth. But there have also
0: been empirical studies into the effects of exposure to nature on mental health and cognitive performance, so not just physiological health uh, like we already mentioned. Uh, some of the things that have been found are that like access to green space has associations with lower levels of stress and anxiety. Uh, this would sort of go along with the lower concentrations of salivary cortisol that we mentioned uh, in the physiological review. Uh, fewer symptoms of depression, improved mood. And some studies have found that immersion in or interaction with nature gives a sort of time-dependent power-up to some forms of cognition. Just to cite one study, there have been many like this, but one was by uh, Andrea Faber-Taylor and Francis E. Coe, published in Journal of Attention Disorders in 2009, called Children with Attention Deficits Concentrate Better After a Walk in the Park. And uh, so this points out that other pre-existing studies had already found that working memory and the ability to pay attention are enhanced after spending time in certain physical environments, particularly in natural settings. And this study tried to apply the principle to children diagnosed with ADHD uh, between 7 and 12 years of age. So. The study compared the children's performance on a test of attention and working memory known as the digit span backwards test. Uh, Basically, you read out a sequence of numbers and then you test how well the subject can repeat those numbers back to you in reverse order. And so they tried this test with uh, children after three different walks of 20 minutes in length. A walk through a neighborhood, a walk through a downtown area, and a walk through a foliated park, most resembling the, uh, the the natural setting. And the children apparently performed substantially better after the walk in the park than after the other two walks, adding to this pile of evidence that for some reason, people, including children with ADHD, can pay attention and use their working memory better after a short period of immersion in nature. And the authors use this finding to suggest it's possible that regular, quote, doses of nature, just nature walks or other ways of immersing yourself in those kind of surroundings, might be helpful to kids with ADHD on on attention-taxing tasks. Mm. Uh, But it doesn't stop there. There have been plenty of other findings about cognitive improvements after periods of exposure to nature. Uh, One example I came across was a study by uh, Hardig et al. published in Environment and Behavior in 1991 called Restorative Effects of Natural Environment Experiences. Uh, This apparently found that compared to relaxing indoors or taking a walk in the city, people who took a walk in nature scored better on a proofreading task. That's something else that is sort of taxing on your your fine control of attention. And another common finding seems to be that spending time in nature may improve our ability to block out distracting stimuli or unnecessary information when we're trying to focus. Hmm which I would say that absolutely checks out with my experience when my brain is taxed and like, I can't read the words on the computer screen anymore. Going for a walk in in the forest does noticeably make a difference there for me.
1: Yeah. And, and it's interesting how it can work in both ways. Like just on a, not only on an audible level, but also visual level uh, walk in nature can give you less stimuli when you're overstimulated and it can also give you the stimulation you need when you feel understimulated. So yeah. regardless if you're, you know, especially in today's work environment, you might be at home uh, and working most of the day, and then you're just like, I got to get out. I've got to see something different than what I've seen, and here's something different than what I've been listening to. And then likewise, you could be in the office across town, and you've had back-to-back meetings and constant stimuli, and you're like, I need to bring it down a notch. You can, also, you can both go to the same forest, and you can find your relief. Yes, and I think we'll come back to that uh,
0: a little bit later in the episode, because that connects to uh, ideas about different types of stimuli that capture our attention in different ways.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but it, this whole thing we've been talking about, like the the ability of nature to, say, improve cognitive performance in certain ways, this is what is often referred to in the scientific literature as the, quote, restorative potential of nature immersion. The finding is that natural environments tend to speed our recovery from conditions like stress or mental fatigue. So, we have pretty strong evidence from many different studies over over, uh, decades now that exposing oneself to nature and green space is correlated with a range of positive effects on body health, on psychological well-being, and on temporary mental performance, which brings us to the big question, why nature? if exposure to nature does in fact bring these measurable benefits to mind and body, why, why nature in particular? And what is the biological mechanism leading to these positive effects? Now, I think it's worth noting that it's possible that different effects have different explanations or that a single effect could arise from a combination of inputs. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, one question that immediately occurred to me when I was reading about some of the physiological benefits, the benefits to body health Could things like lower blood pressure and lower risk of cardiovascular disease uh, from spending time in nature be due to the fact that green space encourages people to get more exercise? That seems possible. Uh, So I found one study directly addressing this question when I looked. Uh, This was by Richardson et al. published in Public Health in 2013 called Role of Physical Activity in the Relationship Between Urban Green Space and Health. Basically, it found that exposure to green space was in fact correlated with better mental and physical health outcomes, and this was true when you controlled for other confounding factors, and people who lived in places with more access to green space did actually get more exercise, but that difference wasn't enough to explain the full green space effect on health. Uh, so, just as a hypothetical, it's possible that part but not all of the improved health outcomes Uh, could have something to do with increases in outdoor exercise, while other outcomes such as performance on attention and working memory tasks could have a totally different cause. Uh, But for the rest of the episode, I think we're going to focus on several hypothesized frameworks for explaining these effects of nature on our brains and bodies. Why are we drawn to nature and why does it appear to be so good for us? But first we're going to take a break to hear from our sponsor and then uh, immediately on returning i i think we'll we'll ease in with a short meditation of some natural sound
1: shout out to astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples
0: rob as the uh, the local host with allergies here they sent you some of their nasal spray
1: All right, we're back. We hope everybody's refreshed from that, uh, that meditation moment.
0: Now, before the break, we were talking about some of the uh, documented positive effects of uh, immersion in and access to nature. And now we're going to take a look at some possible explanations for some of these effects. Uh, so uh, I figured we should start with the somatic stuff, the body health, and then, and then come to the more mental realm. So I already mentioned that 2018 meta analysis by uh, Tuhig Bennett and Jones. Uh, about the the health effects of nature, and it actually has a good background section reviewing some of the main ideas that have been p- put forward about why exposure to nature might be good for health. Uh, these are by no means uh, exhaustive of the possible explanations. None of them are proven to be the main one, but th- these are some of the main ideas that scientists have offered as as good possibilities. One is the one I already mentioned, that maybe natural environments promote opportunities for and motivation toward physical exercise, and the positive health effects of exercise are pretty obvious. Another is that some public green spaces may actually promote social interaction, which is also highly correlated with health and well-being, though this seems to vary a lot depending on what kind of natural environment you're talking about. Though I can certainly say from experience that, say, uh, I don't know. I, I feel like I probably am more likely to, to chat it up with, uh, with strangers when walking around in a park th- as opposed to walking around on a sidewalk. I, I don't know what the difference is there, but that, that does ring true to me.
1: Well, I guess part of it is you, you generally have a pretty good idea why the other person is there. Like you, you both have a shared reason to be here. Uh, you're not on your way to somewhere else. This is the destination.
0: That makes sense. Yeah. On a, on a sidewalk, you just assume people are trying to go about their business. You're, you're less likely to, to strike up. A- social conversation
1: right but then again there is something different about nature versus say a video store you go to a video store everyone's there to potentially rent a video but (laughs) you you, it's more it's often more of a solitary situation with occasional conversations uh popping up but yeah you go and you go into nature there is this kind of sort of shared understandings like hey we're all here because we dig this and and there's something about this that opens uh opens us up for conversation Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, Another idea they offer,
0: exposure to sunlight. Uh, This may be uh, increased when you have access to pleasant natural environments, leading to increases in vitamin D synthesis and possibly uh, counteracting seasonal mood disorders. Mm Mm-hmm. Another idea, this is pretty interesting, is the Old Friends Hypothesis. Uh, Versions of this, I think, were formerly known more as the Hygiene Hypothesis. Uh, Old Friends, I think, is an attempt to recast it, to focus on uh, ancestral relationships with certain microbe strains. So the idea here is that Spending time in green space may increase our exposure to beneficial strains of microorganisms, which could help the development of a healthy immune system. So I I think this is still partially in the the phase where the details are being worked out, but it it has been hypothesized that too little exposure to certain environmental microbes contributes to immune system dysregulation and inflammatory disorders, which in turn are major contributors to a, a host of negative health outcomes. And so spending time exclusively in built synthetic environments, it might well give us too much exposure to the wrong kinds of germs and too little exposure to the right kind.
1: Yeah, I've seen it argue that just having a dog that goes outside and is an indoor-outdoor pet uh, exposes one to secondhand microorganisms that can have a beneficial effect on your health and well-being. So to be clear, sending your dog um, out on one of those hike in the wood dog walking trips, you know, where the van comes and collects all the neighborhood dogs. That's yeah. not going to make up for your time away from the forest, your time away from nature. But the argument uh, is out there that it might help you a little bit.
0: Okay, here's one where I abandon all skeptical scrutiny. I just choose to believe whatever the evidence that when my dog goes out, gets filthy and then comes inside <laughs> and loves on me. That's good. That's good. <laughs> Now, again, as I said earlier, these explanations are by no means exhaustive, and it's not just one or the other. It could be a combination of these things. Uh, But there's another thing that occurs to me that has been touched on in a number of the studies I looked at, which is the effect of stress. Uh, There's already plenty of empirical evidence that exposure to natural environments uh, can cut down on subjective reports of stress and can help measurably reduce levels of cortisol, which, again, is a biomarker of psychological stress. Chronic stress and the the cascades that it creates in the body are, are known to have a number of bad consequences for health. So I would also wonder if just simple stress reduction were not a pretty large contributor toward improved health outcomes from time in nature. Now, of course, this raises a secondary question. Why is it that nature reduces stress? Uh, This is probably a harder question to answer, but there have been attempts. And and here I think we have to stray more into the realm of the totally hypothetical. But, you know, at least uh, there are some interesting ideas
1: out there, even though they may remain unproven. Yes. And of course, we want to drive home again that Certainly, just because you're in nature doesn't mean you're having a uh, (laughs) stress-free experience. There are plenty of ways that being in nature can be stressful, uh, but we're talking about like, you know, all things being equal. uh, If I am here in a building or I'm here in nature strolling about, uh, there does seem to be some sort of, of benefit, and why would that be? Exactly. Yes. Uh, So one hypothetical
0: answer that addresses a lot of these questions, like maybe why is it we're less stressed uh, after spending positive time in nature? Or uh, why do we get some of these uh, benefits? One explanation has to do with the shape of our ancestral environments. And this would actually connect to uh, the biophilia hypothesis you already mentioned. This would Mm -hmm. be, I say, the, the class of explanations that you could put under the umbrella of evolutionary psychology. And this would explain our preferences for natural environments and their mental effects on us because our species arose in certain types of environments. And there are features of those environments that represented clear risks and rewards, So under this framework, you know, you you would say that to some extent, our brains are still affected by mechanisms that evolve to help us select the right behavior and maximize survival in those ancestral environments. Now, how would this apply to natural environments? Well, for just a very simple example, think about water sources, Humans without access to water will die within a few days. Maintaining constant access to water is about as close to a survival absolute as you can imagine. Therefore, most evolutionary psychology frameworks would predict that we will probably still to some degree have instinctual preferences for proximity to water. Even if those instincts are no longer strictly relevant to survival anymore, because now you can get water out of a tap or you can bring along a water bottle wherever you go, there may be some evolved module in the brain. It creates a kind of mild stress response when there is not a water source in the nearby environment and that motivates you to get closer one. And maybe maybe it alleviates some stress when water is audible nearby or is in mm-hmm. view. Now, again, this is not something uh, that I have direct evidence for. This is just a possible example of how something like this could work. Uh, but this could be applied to the larger environment as a whole. The world around you is full of sensory cues that could trigger instinctual reactions that are attuned for survival in our ancestral environments. So why do we enjoy the high ground with a wide view? Well, it could be because this is a position of safety. You can see other things approaching from a long way. Why do we prefer certain types of tree shapes? You know, people seem to, uh, this has been tested in experiments, people seem to really like Certain types of trees, trees with like enmeshed canopy and like low lying limbs and stuff. And Mm -hmm. it seems like a reasonable thing to say, well, those are also the trees that are like that provide really good uh, canopy habitats and are easy to climb and you could get up away from predators in them. Now, there's a very important caveat to evolutionary psychology uh, explanations, which is that they on one hand, on the pro side, they can make a lot of sense of human preferences and behaviors. But on the other hand, they can also be notoriously difficult, though not impossible, to test in a rigorous way. Uh, So, you know, you've probably heard before people just saying like, oh, you know, we do this or we like that because of – and then they give some evolutionary story. And it's like, but yeah, how do you know that? (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, you know, it's always good to remember that just because you've managed to come up with a plausible story in your head about why survival pressures – in the ancestral environment might have led to preferences and reactions we still have today you haven't necessarily discovered the explanation you would still need to like work out some predictions that explanation would make and then test to see if those predictions are true but for the moment dwelling in this hypothetical space you can easily imagine a pretty plausible chain of mechanisms that would go something like this so you have An ancestral landscape that affects our survival, and this gives rise to instinctual preferences for and against certain landscape features, maybe we like proximity to water, we like certain kinds of tree cover, and so forth. And that perhaps those preferences still affect us today, exerting an influence on our levels of anxiety and stress when the landscape is less than favorable. And then anxiety and stress are, of course, upstream of a raft of other mental health outcomes and general cognitive performance. So I I would consider that like a very uh, plausible explanation space. But unfortunately, a lot of the stories that it comes up with can be difficult to test. Uh, There's another interesting explanatory framework, especially for the restoration aspect of our nature experience that has come up in a lot of the papers I've looked at, and this is a framework known as attention restoration theory. This was developed by a couple of psychologists affiliated with the University of Michigan named Rachel and Stephen Kaplan, Uh, I think especially in their book from Cambridge University Press in 89 called The Experience of Nature, A Psychological Perspective. Uh, now essentially attention restoration theory argues that, uh, nature and synthetic environments are different and their effects on us are different because of the different ways that they capture our attention. Now I found this one very interesting. I'll try to do a brief summary of this idea. I found it summarized in a paper by, uh, Berman, uh, Jonaites and Kaplan published in Psychological Science in 2008 called the Cognitive Benefits of Interacting with Nature, uh, ART is based on a body of research showing that there are two functionally different types of attention. So there's involuntary attention, and this is where your attention drifts effortlessly to things that are inherently interesting or important. And then on the other hand, there is voluntary or directed attention. And this is where you give attention to things through effortful cognitive control. I think actually there's a pretty good linguistic shorthand for this. Voluntary or directed attention roughly corresponds to anything you would describe as, quote, paying attention to rather than just being aware of it automatically. But so the basic idea goes like this. So we engage with the world through uh, the executive attention network, which is mediated by the brain's prefrontal cortex. And like many other parts of the body, it can become exhausted when it is used too consistently for too long. You've been putting a lot of demands Mm -hmm. on it. It gets overworked. Tons of tasks in our environment involve sustained use of executive attentional resources. Uh, obviously, most kinds of work do this. You have to pay attention when you're working on something. But even some recreational tasks are things you have to effortfully pay attention to. like misery scrolling on your phone is despite the fact that it's like addictive, you, you're still like paying attention to things with effortful control. Attention restoration theory argues that engaging with nature is good at giving your attentional resources a replenishing rest period – By immersing yourself in an environment full of things that attract involuntary attention through what they call soft fascination, you make yourself better at performing subsequent tasks that require directed, effortful attention. The executive attentional system is basically just allowed to rest during this type of fascination because there's nothing that you have to fixate on.
1: Right. It's… That experience of just walking through the woods and you're you're hearing birds. What birds? Who knows? They're just they're making bird noises. <laughs> you're passing trees. You're not necessarily identifying them. You know, not to say that identification of various organisms isn't uh, uh, also uh, a rewarding aspect of spending time in nature. But there's this, yeah, this feeling of just moving through it. Your attention drifting uh, among the various stimuli that you're presented with, uh, and 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 also allowing your mind to sort of wander.
0: Yeah, and I, I think it's in a special middle category because it's also not just like a blank room with nothing in it, right. you know, nothing that you can pay attention to. It is an environment that is not boring. Like boredom in itself can be a type of stress-inducing thing because then maybe you start paying really close attention to, say, your internal monologue or something. Yeah, um, yeah. well, so- I
1: mean, a boring room is a human construction you know, this is, these are not environments that we evolved to thrive in. We evolved to thrive in spaces where other organisms have access to those spaces, be they plants or animals, uh, where there are you know, changes in, in weather pattern, where the sky is visible. I mean, certainly you can. Uh, there are caves and whatnot where I guess you could make a case for saying, well, this is a, a sensory deprivation environment that one might encounter in the natural world. But for the most part, this, this is just not how it works. The, the boring spaces are the ones we created for ourselves. Yeah. So
0: nature is this kind of perfect middle. It's not boring, but it's also not something you have to pay attention to. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of studies about the restorative potential of nature do appeal to uh, to ART, but it's not the only possible explanation. It's not the proven theory. Uh, we're not going to get deep into it here, but th- there's another similar framework I was reading about multiple times called SRT instead of ART, standing for, uh, I think, stress reduction theory, explaining some of the cognitive benefits of nature via its stress-reducing properties rather than through its attention-replenishing properties. I don't know how to sort out between those right now, but it's possible that they may both have some kind of purchase on the truth. Mm. Now, I think maybe we should take another break uh, to hear from our sponsor, followed by another uh, uh, brief natural meditation. But when we come back, I want to talk a bit about creativity. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential
1: All right, we're back. Hope everyone is refreshed and ready for more.
0: Right. So we've talked about uh, physiological health, mental health, and cognitive restoration. But there have been a number of other positive, higher-level mental benefits to nature exposure that have been proposed. Uh, Just to mention one, I wanted to talk about creativity for a minute. So this question is, can spending time in nature actually make you better at creative thinking? I think the answer is possibly yes. Some experiments do point in that direction. And uh, one, just one study in this area I wanted to look at was called Creativity in the Wild, Improving Creative Reasoning Through Immersion in Natural Settings, published in PLOS One in 2012 by Actually et al. Uh, so, First big question here, like, how do you test for something like creativity? Uh, obviously, that is much harder to quantify than, say, tests of working memory that ask you to repeat a sequence of numbers. The 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 number sequence repetition, that that's a pretty straightforward test. But, like, mm-hmm. for creativity, what do you do? Do you have somebody write a poem and then see how good it is? <laughs> I mean, no, obviously, that would not be very objective. But there actually are some simpler tests for creativity that, uh, that don't capture everything we think of when we think of creativity, but they, uh, but they do get at some core aspects of it, and I think they're pretty clever. So the one used in this paper is known as the Remote Associates Test, or RAT. And the test goes like this. I'm going to give you three words, and then I ask you to come up with a fourth word that connects the three I gave you. So here's an example. Same, tennis, head. Do we want to do some uh, some license-free Jeopardy type music for this? <laughs> same tennis head. I don't know if I would have got this because the answer is right there in the paper when I read it. So I didn't have a chance to like test myself. But the answer is match. Match when things are the same, they match. There's oh, a tennis yes, match. There's a match, match head. And this is an interesting test because the path to the answer in each puzzle is, you know, they give you a long list of these things. It's not obvious. It requires you to make associative leaps and novel connections and to sort of reinterpret linguistic clues in a way that does model part of what we mean when we say creative thinking. Creative thinking, I would argue, is making connections that are useful or fruitful but that are not obvious.
1: Right. Like, I think I would have been thrown off by this test because I would have tried to think of something like maybe clever and humorous that ties them all together without thinking of something that something like match. Like maybe I would think of, say, Pete Sampras doppelgangers. I don't
0: know. <laughs> oh, you're too creative for the test. That's the problem. <laughs>
1: yeah, that, that's my problem.
0: Well, so this particular study used that type of test, and the, the different conditions were whether people had um, a, a multi-day immersion in nature through a hiking trip versus control conditions where they did not go out on a natural hiking trip. And they found a, a pretty sizable difference. Uh, they found nearly 50% increase in the uh, in the performance on these puzzle tests. By the group of naive hikers. Now that sounds like a large effect to me. So I, I would mm-hmm. want to see that replicated in other studies. Um, but it, it, again, does not seem implausible to me that there is some effect that spending time in nature has not only this sort of uh, attention restoring potential, but maybe clears the mind in other types of ways that haven't even been fully articulated uh, in ways that allow you to make these sort of uh, uh, non-obvious connections and creative turns in logic uh, more than you would have been able to do otherwise. I mean, like, I, I feel that. I feel that process uh, in, in my own creative work sometimes. And there have also been some other studies connecting time in nature to higher-level creativity. One I was looking at was not actually an experiment. It was just a survey of creative professionals about their processes and the role of nature in their process. And, and this one indicated that time in nature was especially helpful in the early stages of a creative project, more so than in the later stages. That that totally rings true to me because I think of the early stages of, of a creative process are the ones that require those sort of strange mental connections. And then the later stages are often more mechanical or about craft.
1: Yeah, yeah, I find this to be true as well. Like for 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 me, if I need to then want to think creatively about something, uh, there's nothing beats just walking on a beach. If I can get access to a beach with just enough of it to where I can have a decent stroll uh, up and down uh, the beach for a while, like that is where I do some of my best creative thinking. And then once you develop some ideas, then yeah, you're gonna then you're gonna have to work with them, then you're gonna have to do the harder part. And uh, the beach might not be the best place for that. But you didn't come out to the beach to, to do the hard part. You didn't. You came out to the beach to feel the sense of renewal and to, and to get into this creative mindset.
0: Yeah. Anecdotally, I can totally get behind that process. If you are if you want to start a new creative project, go for a walk in the woods, go out to a state park, do, you know, do whatever. That's like, it's great to do right at the beginning.
1: Mm-hmm. And and then to do again once you get sick of the <laughs> the harder part or you're fed up with the various uh uh meetings that you've had to have to try and bring this idea to fruition, then go back to the woods because you'll need it then too.
0: Well, I, I feel like this has been really interesting and um again, as as we so often end up lamenting after after a fun episode, like we we really only scratched the surface. There there was so much stuff in the uh, domain of the the effects of nature on, on our minds and our bodies that uh, we didn't even have time for today. Uh, It's something we could totally return to in the future.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And of course, as always, we'd love to hear from listeners about this, share your experiences with walking in nature, both, uh, you know, certainly in the past, but also we challenge you to take some of this new insight with you when you go back into nature again. Uh, So whatever your next, uh, you know, minor neighborhood walk happens to be or epic adventure that you've been planning for months and months, uh, once you've gone on those adventures, uh, write back to us and tell us what you think and tell us how, how all of that connects with what we discussed here today.
0: I want to hear about people's favorite trees. Tell me your favorite tree shape. (laughs) This will not be a scientific sample, but I am interested. Do you like the trees with the low drooping branches? Do you like the tall trunk with a big canopy
1: up above? I, I want to know. All right, well, write in. We'd love to hear from you. In the meantime, we'll remind you to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind with core episodes of our show on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Um, On Mondays, usually we do a listener mail episode. On Wednesdays, we do a short form artifact or monster fact episode. And on Fridays, we do Weird House Cinema. That's our time to set aside most serious concerns and just chat about a weird film.
0: Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback, on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your mind Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio for more podcasts from iHeartRadio visit the iHeartRadio app Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows